Welcome to Fishing Without Bait, a lifetime without definitive expectations. Whether you've got here by accident or on purpose, you're welcome. If you're welcome nowhere else, you're always welcome here. The only membership requirement is the honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness to try. If you have a few pixie dust sprinkles of those, you're on your way and welcome aboard. I'm Jim Ellermeyer. I'm a behavioral health therapist. And as for our listeners of the show, know what we like to do is bring back some of our guests in the future and find out what uh, what occurred in their life. And today we're uh, rejoined by our friend Chris uh, Whitlatch. Well, thanks for having me back, Jim. Yes. Uh, when we talked to our last episode, for those who, shame on you if you haven't watched them before, uh, Chris uh, was uh, candid enough and honest enough and had enough courage to share with our audience how he dealt with his bipolar disorder and moved ahead with his life and didn't let that define him. Yes, and I want to thank you for giving me that opportunity to share my story in that way. And um, I know it's, you know, it's, um, I hope it actually was helpful to um, those that, that watched it. Um, even if you don't have bipolar, I think you learn a lot of lessons from um, from anyone with bipolar. And likewise, um, someone like me learns from, from others as well. Well, when we talk about people being in recovery, Chris, we don't necessarily mean drugs and or alcohol. That can be anxiety, it can be depression, it can be a bipolar issue, it can be chewing your fingernails, it can be a relationship issue, eating too many banana popsicles. So our purpose on this show is to show people how they got here from there in the process. I think that's that's a wonderful way of putting it um, because I think that's kind of what I've attempted in my own life is to to just grow and continue to you know enjoy the present as you say and and um, not worry so much about the highs and lows that um, we all experience. Well, we talked earlier, Chris, about that life is neither fair nor unfair; it just is. And what we can control is how we react to things. So catch us up uh, on Crystal. It's been a couple of years since we've spoken. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's been some some big changes in my life. And, and the book is kind of the, the first, you know, tangible um, example of those changes. Um, but uh, I have have always said to myself, well, I can't get to this. I can't do this. I can't, I don't have time for this, or I'm too tired for this. I'm, you know, things like that uh, were standing in the way of my own personal projects. And, and so I have actually left full-time employment, which was a huge fear for me and uncertainty for me. Um, and um, I am working as a consultant, making my own hours now and making hours for my personal projects as part of that. And I feel great. <laughs> so I uh, feel so much more alive than I have in, in the past. It's really interesting. What we're hearing you saying is that you were operating under constraints that didn't allow you to pursue a passion. Yes, I, that sums it up in, 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 you know, very succinctly, Jim, is um, these constraints that were all placed on and, you know, we, we have to pay the bills and, 
in my case, I have some some health issues that I deal with, and I need, you know, I need to know that my medications are going to come <laughs> uh, when I need them, and I can afford them, and things like that. That creates a lot of 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 fear, of constraints, of you know, loops that we go through. I think, and it's hard to sort of break out of those cycles. Um, but when you do, wow, you know, it's. Uh, it's energizing. Well, a lot of times people play the if only game. Well, if only I had this, if only I didn't have this, then I could do this. Uh, and we're going to be talking about your book soon. So let's say for somebody that wants to become a writer, well, uh, if only I had a better laptop. And then if only I had a better word processing program, I could start. And then I need a better lamp. And then I need a better desk. And then I need a better chair. When you're sitting down to write, you will find all of those things and more to stop you from writing. And I think it's been described as one of the most, you know, wonderful things you could ever do and one of the hardest things you could ever do at the same time. So it's enjoyable and painful uh, <laughs> at the same time. And so that's what every writer will do is put those blocks in front of you. And what I'll say is that those blocks are going to come no matter what. And you'll find it. You know, you'll go do the laundry um, instead of writing the next chapter. Um, you'll, you'll find that block. Um, for some reason, that's just what writers do. But if you truly want to do this, it, it is such a joyous experience to get to the end of the process. And, and even getting through that process is a lot of fun too. So don't let anything stop you. If you can't sit down at the computer, pull out a notebook and write by hand. I have um, a wonderful um, teacher um, that every workshop I've done with her, she won't let us write on the the computer. We have to write in a notebook uh, because the physical way of doing that kind of stimulates the mental part of, of writing as well. So whatever it takes, if you can't write what you want to write today, write something. Um, doesn't matter what. Those are just the little things that you can do to, to get yourself around those blocks. And then there are times where you're going to have to say, I need a rest. I need to do something fun. I need to take a walk and, you know, see everything that's around me. I need to be in nature. I need to sit down in a hotel lobby so I can get my dialogue better. You know, anything like that, you're still working at your craft. As a behavioral health therapist, Chris, quite often I deal with people who put conditions on their goals, conditions on their happiness. And I like what you're saying is that your teacher said, just get out a pencil or a pen and a piece of paper. Yeah, we, we'd all like to be, you know, J.K. Rowling and, and have the success of Harry Potter. And, you know, I think I, I and a lot of other people put that, put that in my mind in the past, too, of I'm only going to do this if I can do this full time or if it's going to pay the bills or anything like that. And then I realized that's not why I wanted to write. I wanted to tell stories. And so it doesn't matter if 
this book sells one copy or 100 copies. Um, that's not what it was put out for. It was put out so that I could tell these stories that I loved so much um, hearing about and then researching. And, and that's what it should be about is, is, is following your, your passion. Um, and then everything else will just fall in place after that. So the creative process, when I deal with people, Chris, college students, uh, whatever, when they have an assignment to do, they often hesitate to do it because they want to get it perfect. They want to get it right the first time. I don't think they understand what the rewrite process and the massaging maybe have other eyes on it. So tell us about that. Yeah, it's um, it's really difficult still for me to get a critique um, on something I've written. Um, and it's taken me, it's taken me a long time to sort of get over that rejection, I guess. And it's not necessarily rejection when you get a critique. It's actually someone that's trying to make your work better. Um, and, um, luckily I have a wonderful wife who is my first editor on anything that I ever do. <laughs> and she knows exactly how to, to sort of critique my baby before it grows up. And, um, you know, once, once we get through, through that first process, it then gets easier and easier and easier. And nothing you do is going to be necessarily perfect out of, out of the gate. And, um, how somebody reads it and views it is just as important as, as what you're producing too. Um, cause you want to make that connection with your audiences. So knowing how somebody reacts and, and being able to take that critique and then take it back and build on that, you know, you don't have to just take it, build on it. The ability to take helpful criticism as important as the ability to take compliments. Yeah, and if you can do that, wow, you know, <laughs> if you can take a take a critique as well as you take a compliment, then you're doing good. So, how does the process begin? You start off with an idea. Yeah, um, it can be an idea, or it can just be I want to share my experience of you know, what I've done, or I want to share my passions of what I like. Um, it can, I think it can spark and your creativity can be sparked and started from any number of places. Um, you know, you'd be sitting in traffic and something might hit you on the way in. It's, wow, that would be a good story. Well, yeah, it'd be a good story. So your passion was, uh, about the city of Pittsburgh. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, it was, it was, it's an, it's an interesting route in it. And, um, one of the lessons I learned is that there are always going to be people there that will help you to help spur you along, help you with the next thing. But the, the idea came because I was working on a project for the Pittsburgh foundation. I was working for the Pittsburgh foundation at the time. And my boss there was Grant Oliphant and he sat on the board of the cultural trust and it was the 25th anniversary of the cultural trust and they have basically taken a lot of these old um vice properties um and turned them into now cultural attractions or back to cultural attractions because that's what was there before right um 
And he said, well, Chris, you're good at research. You know, why don't you take a, a look at what these buildings were and now what they are? Um, and so I, I started searching through newspapers. I started searching through old Post-Gazette clippings and Pittsburgh Press clippings. And when I started looking for these buildings, the story started popping up. And I said, wow, this reads like Goodfellas. I said, this would be really cool. So I started to write these things down. I just, just started writing them down. It never became the project for, for the Pittsburgh Foundation. But um, then I moved on and I was hosting a show called Into Pittsburgh. And I was having great people on the show that were doing great things in Pittsburgh. And one of them was Bonnie Baxter, Thor's Open Pittsburgh. And I said, you know what, Bonnie, you got these tours coming up. I got this great story about this one building that, that you guys are going to be going into. I said, I'd be happy to stand out there and tell it. And she said, she said, why don't you just take all your stories and put them together into a tour? And it was her that kind of spurred it into having me start to organize these stories and how they lay out and what, what the connections were. So, you know, without those two pieces, I don't know if I would have never got to the, the, the point of where I was like, oh, I want to write this in a book, you know. Well, there's all types of factors that play into our choices and decisions, uh, but it's, it's, it's the action and effort part that I hear you talking about. So tell us about the title of the book. Tell us how that came about and when it came about. Until I, I started thinking, well, you know, what kind of stories these are, right? It's not necessarily historical, but it is. And it's, it's not full-on true crime, but it is. Um, so it had all these pieces to it. And I said, well, these are the notorious stories of Pittsburgh. These are the ones that, you know, Pittsburgh's really good at redding up, right? That's what we do here in Pittsburgh. We read things up. And so these are the stories that might have been sort of shoved underneath, you know, the the carpet you know here in Pittsburgh and not told as often and so that's where the title come, came from and so it became Notorious Pittsburgh Notorious Pittsburgh I read the book uh, carefully it was incredibly well researched and a lot of these stories I think that people would there's like an uncle that people don't talk about <laughs> yes yeah it's um it's, it was amazing to me when I first started taking people on these walking tours and I st first started telling the stories and the first tour was through the, the old red light district, uh, which is now the cultural district here in Pittsburgh. And um, it was amazing to me, the people that said, I knew so-and-so, or I used to come um, to that building um, there's a bathhouse in the basement and my dance studio was on the second floor. And I used to ask my mother, like, why don't they just take their baths at home? You know? <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was amazing to me at the connections and Pittsburgh is that place, right? It's like six degrees here in Pittsburgh. You're connected in some way to something, to, to some event or some person that knew something. Uh, here in Pittsburgh, it's real easy to find those people. <laughs> what I caught on quickly, Chris, was in the beginning of the book, the center of the, the vice trade, uh, whatever you want to call it, the massage parlor things, uh, the, the clubs, the exclusive clubs, seemed to center around Grant Street. Yes. Um, and so, well, if you go back, back in history, it actually wasn't even there. It wasn't even here in downtown per se. In downtown during Prohibition, there were definitely speakeasies. There were many speakeasies, 
Um, but the the sort of red light district was on the north side around where the stadiums are now. And then they started to, uh, when things got cracked down there and they started to build things in that area, um, a lot of the, the steel mills were moving out. Uh, that caused a lot of businesses to close down here in Pittsburgh. That caused real estate to be really cheap here in downtown. And I fear we might be heading towards that again. So we've got to be very mindful of our history. Um, but um, it was easy to buy up these spaces, get these spaces on Liberty Avenue and Penn Avenue, basically from Grant to uh, Stanwix. So this could be the story of any city. It can. It can. Um, what happens is when economic conditions exist that make it possible to make money in a certain area, that's what will happen. <laughs> so. so what these places did, they provided opportunities for people to uh, perhaps find some entertainment that wasn't going to the movies. Yes. So, you know, I, I think, you know, Pittsburgh was built, uh, we always said it's a shot in beer town. It, it was built on, on take-home pay. We say it's built on steel mills and coal and things like that, but it was built on those workers that worked there and then had the the you know disposable income to spend it on entertainment and if I, they wanted something a little bit more exciting you went to the red light district. i caught that uh, i caught that right away that pittsburgh was built on take-home pay when we talk about cities when we give histories of cities normally they talk about its most illustrious citizens mm -hmm. the people who the judges the lawyers uh the entrepreneurs the movers the shakers the andrew carnegie's the, the, the george westinghouses here in pittsburgh but what you talk, you talk a lot about the everyman. Yes, because, you know, the everyman was doing the job that made those those titans. And, and yeah, we, we celebrate Andrew Carnegie here because, well, he provided a, a lot of money. And that's why we have libraries here in Pittsburgh, right? Have such great libraries here in Pittsburgh. Probably the best, one of the best library systems in the United States, basically, thanks to his money. But, you know, he wasn't. Always, the, there's a lot of notorious stories around Carnegie for what he did with his workers. Absolutely, and you know his steel was made by his workers. Um, and those jobs, I mean, people came to Pittsburgh for those jobs because those jobs put a chicken in every pot, put a car in your driveway, could you know basically have a family. When you lost a, a steel job here in Pittsburgh, you didn't lose one; you lost because it paid for the entire family. It was family-sustaining wages. It's hard work, very hard work, but family-sustaining wages. So not only were there grocery stores set up for people to buy food, there was houses, there was people to sell clothes and shoes, and there was also people who were willing to provide entertainment, let's say, of a baser nature. Yes. And when you worked that hard, well, sometimes you needed some some excitement. And there was a bar outside of every steel mill. Um, so uh, if you didn't want to drink there, you wanted to take take it in for some more excitement. Well, those buildings downtown were perfect for Vice because you could put a X-rated bookstore in the bottom retail sections and you could use those upper floors on the second and third floors of those buildings they made great massage parlors. 
Uh, so we don't want to cast any dispersions on legitimate uh, massage therapists here who do a wonderful job and provide a great service. However, I think massage had another connotation. Yes, absolutely not. <laughs> um, uh, these were not massage parlors. That was um, the uh, legitimate front that they basically put on a business that was a prostitution business. Um, these women were being sold for sex. So I think we're seeing a resurgence of that today with the human trafficking that's uh, going on. Um, however, back then, I think that a lot of these women just were looking for substance, were looking for a job. Yeah, if you, um, I think it's very similar then as it is today. If you were looking for a way out of a bad situation in your home, this was one of those ways. Um, and, you know, in, in some cases, if you worked for, say, Tex Gill, well, he treated his workers very, very well. Um, but that was an exception to the, the rule, and you still were, you know, dealing with, you know, something that would have a huge impact on your life in one way or another. We're going to continue our conversation with our next episode with local author Chris Whitlatch. And at the end of every podcast, of course, we offer a free prescription. Fruits, nuts, and vegetables. Unplug your television and take up fishing. And for a truly mindful experience, we suggest that you fish without bait. Do a kindness for yourself and do a kindness for another. Forgive yourself and forgive another. If we are all not God's children, none of us are. Till all are free, none are free. Namaste, my friend.